Hello and welcome to the Sea Change Podcast. I am your host, Jenna Valente, and this is your go-to show to learn about the most inspiring people living, working, and recreating on the American shorelines. And this week we are giving some well-deserved attention to American estuaries. These are places where fresh and saltwater meet, which is also an extremely oversimplified explanation of these areas, but I promise we'll get into much more detail during the show. Estuaries are some of the most vital habitats on the planet for birds, mammals, fish, people, and other wildlife. They are economic powerhouses and they provide valuable services like filtering pollution and mitigating damage from coastal storms. Not to mention they're just really beautiful and offer countless opportunities to recreate in, on, or around them. So when I was thinking about who I wanted to invite on the show to nerd out for the next hour or so about estuaries, this person and this estuary immediately came to mind. So it is an absolute honor to be joined today by Kate Fritz, the Executive Director of the Alliance for the Chesapeake Bay. Kate, welcome. Thanks, Jenna. I'm excited to be here and nerd out with you. (laughs) (laughs) So let's start off actually by rewinding a little bit and getting to know you and your path a little better. Did you grow up around the Chesapeake Bay or in the watershed? And if not, where did you spend your early years? Sure. Um, So the Chesapeake Bay watershed is comprised of seven different jurisdictions that drain into it. And I have lived in five of those seven jurisdictions. Um, Growing up, my dad's job had us moving around a lot. So when I think of the Chesapeake Bay, it wasn't until I went to college and uh, at St. Mary's down in Southern Maryland, where I even learned about what the actual Chesapeake Bay proper looked like. What I didn't know was that I was enjoying the Chesapeake Bay as a kid my whole life, whether it was catching crawfish in the streams of West Virginia or whether it was running through the woods in Pennsylvania or kind of playing in the lowland swamps in, in Virginia. Um, I was enjoying all of the Chesapeake Bay. So, um, so I really understood it from a land-based perspective before I even um, came to understand it from uh, a water body perspective. Which I feel like is a really unique perspective to have, but also one that I think a number of people share in that, you know, maybe not fully realizing that they live within the Chesapeake Bay watershed, just because it's so huge. Uh, But really taking the time to get outside and enjoy the outdoors um, around the bay and having the bay be so influential in, you know, shaping their love for recreation or spending time outside. And I already heard you note, uh, you know, a few memories that you had from spending time outdoors when you were growing up. And um, it sounds like it might be those experiences may be influential to you in terms of pursuing a career path. Like, do you think that they played a really important role in you deciding to eventually pursue a career in conservation? Absolutely. Um, I've, I've really reflected a lot on um, kind of my upbringing and the opportunities I got um, to be exposed to different um, natural systems. And I, I really attribute kind of where I am in my career to two different incidences in my life. Um, one is that um, I have been going to a private hunting and fishing club that my father was a member at and his father was a member at since I was nine months old um, up in Pennsylvania. 
And that was a thousand preserved acres of woods that I learned how to fish on. Um, I learned how to you know, identify trees and learned about you know, all the animals that utilize that space. There was a 75 acre lake. Um, and so going up there on vacation every year, um, a couple times a year was always really important to me. What I learned in later life was that um, Gifford Pinchot, who was Teddy Roosevelt's first forester at the federal government, and uh, one of Maryland, I'm sorry, one of Pennsylvania's former governors in, in the 20s um, was a member there. And so when I really think about my conservation ethos and I think about Gifford Pinchot, who his whole theory was the greatest amount for the greatest amount of people for the longest amount of time. He was a real advocate for managing natural resources. I really can't help but think that just the fact that I uh, enjoyed beaver run hunting and fishing club from a recreational standpoint, but knowing that this conservation giant um, sat in the same you know rooms as, as I did growing up, I think kind of also um, kind of snuck into maybe some of my subconscious and uh, helped influence who I am. I'll say the second thing that really helped influence me um, was an opportunity my family had to live in Sao Paulo, Brazil for two years in the early 90s. And at the time, Sao Paulo was the third largest city in the world. And I just remember how horrible the, the Rio Pinheiro smelled um, all the time and how the, the rivers just all the time were conveyances of trash and human waste. And even in eighth, ninth grade, I fully understood that that's, that's not a very healthy way of living. Um, you know, whenever there was a news report where they caught anything live that had actually lived in those, those uh, rivers, it was kind of a, a local, you know, phenomenon that something would, would actually live in those in those rivers. So, you know, I, I carried that with me into high school and started, you know, when I took my first environmental science class, I started to understand some things and connect some things. I certainly got exposed to the Amazon rainforest and its destruction and that in that opportunity to live in Brazil as well. So there were, there has been a couple formative things for me that I think have really shaped and influenced um, kind of where I am today. What a special experience too. Like, I'm not sure that I've ever met anybody that has, you know, lived and enjoyed the like rural Pennsylvania and then urban Brazil. And that, that sort of speaks to, you know, I think such a central part of, forming your own identity, but especially when you're thinking about conservation, um, having just getting out into the world and experiencing it for how vast and diverse it really is. Um, and having those experiences where, you know, I've had some moments like this in my own path where I lived on a barrier island off the coast of rural Virginia on a wildlife refuge where you kind of push the bounds of solitude and you like get to a place of, you know, you're very uh, in your own head, but you're in this like vast refuge and you learn so much about yourself in those moments. But then when you go to the flip side of also living in urban areas, like where I find myself in Boston now, and you're in the, you know, the Delmarva Annapolis area, um, or having lived in Brazil, where you see another very real side of the world that is rapidly growing when you have these these big urban centers um, and thinking about conservation challenges from both perspectives and finding a way to somehow meet in the middle, I think is just such an incredible experience to have and very formative um, when you think about, you know, 
pursuing that career in, in conservation. Absolutely. I always joke that my knowledge is about an inch deep, but a mile wide. Um, I, I am an expert in nothing. And I think that's because, well, one, I, I'm a Gemini. And so I, I truly believe there's kind of two parts of me. Um, but I really do think it's because of my varied experiences through life, uh, having been exposed um, to, you know, intact solitude and wilderness. And at the same time, seeing what the what the opposite of that looks like. Um, absolutely. Definitely carried those experiences forward. So we've heard you note so far a few of the places you've lived and really enjoy. Um, and just as somebody who really enjoys spending out time outside, do you have any favorite places to visit or recreate? And what makes those places so special to you? Um, I'll have to say my number one place, favorite place on this earth is Beaver Run Hunting and Fishing Club in the Poconos in Pennsylvania. Uh, I've been going up there since I was nine months old, as I said. Um, this is something that's been part and parcel to me to be part of a piece of property that is protected in perpetuity, all thousand acres of it. When the club bought the property in 1895, it was completely logged from property line to property line. And the club, you can go back and read the meeting minutes of the club since then to see how many trees they've planted across the whole property um, every year. And you can track the progress of the restoration of that site since 1895. And then to the, yeah, and then I helped the club write uh, natural resource inventory um, 10 years ago. Um, did some kind of preliminary background research for them, and they they have a permanent easement on the property now. A million acres, I'm sorry, a thousand acres are are in conserved in perpetuity, and the club has money in the bank to make sure that they can manage and uh, preserve those resources into the future. Um, I have um, I've had the honor of being accepted into membership at the club just this past year as the first woman in 124 years. Um, and so I'm very honored and privileged to continue to be part of, of that property's history and management of a really important piece of property. It's in the Bushkill watershed in Pennsylvania, where about 85% of the pristine waters of Pennsylvania still exist. So it's an incredibly important part of the ecological fabric of the state of Pennsylvania. So I, I overwhelmingly um, think Beaver Run is my favorite place in the whole world. Well, congratulations. It's very well deserved. And so with the members of that club, do you guys, so do you all pay dues and all take, take uh, shared responsibility in, in caring for the easement? Yep, absolutely. Um, it's a dues um, funded club. Um, there are different committees. There are, um, there are natural resource committees. There's a lake committee. Um, there's different committees that are always constantly seeking to do different natural resource management on the property. Um, for We've been doing a 10-acre experimental plot on trying to bring the native um, chestnut tree back that has been crossbred with uh, kind of an Asian gene to see if we can help grow back a population uh, on the property. There's all sorts of management for um, deer populations. There's a large hunting crowd at the club. Um, we're starting to just focus on the lake itself. It's been filling in over time as lakes do. And so how do we want to manage that um, for the future of the club so that we can keep using it to fish and recreate, but at the same time, make sure, you know, we can preserve it for ecological value and, and continued uplift for clean water. 
Um, so yeah, the club has a lot of stewardship over its land. It, it really, in the mission of the club, it is for environmental stewardship as well, not just the hunting and fishing piece of the interest of the club, but it's also to preserve uh, the natural state uh, in perpetuity. I think it's also, it sounds like a, a good look into uh, the benefits of community and sharing that responsibility in a way where, you know, you all have ownership over this space and you all probably, I'm assuming everybody has their own areas of expertise and knowledge and you can all play off of each other's strengths to care for it. But then also on the flip side, you know, you're doing all of this so that you're able to enjoy it in a sustainable way for, you know, years to come. Absolutely. Yep. That's a, it's a shared community around, um, a thousand acres. And um, that, that's a really good point. We all bring our different strengths to the table. Um, I've been tapped to lead uh, the lake committee as water resources is my uh, expertise and my background. And I'm excited to help gather the voices around, you know, what are the priorities in terms of how we want to continue, continue to use the lake into the future in order to then line up management strategies and potential, you know, funding opportunities for how to manage some of those different pieces of our natural resources specific to the lake. So I'm really excited to, to share some of my own expertise in a, on a piece of property that's meant a lot to me my whole life. That's fantastic. And so now that we've heard a little bit about, you know, your inspiration and what really piqued your interest in getting started in a career in the conservation field, I would love to hear a little bit more about what the process was like with you for getting your foot in the door with a conservation career. And I think that this is a really important thing to discuss because um, it just seems like everybody I talk to has such a different experience and takes a wildly different path to get to where we are now. And I love to highlight that. So anybody listening that maybe is early on in their career or considering a career in the conservation field um, really can see that there is no like one direct way to get to where we are now. That is so true. Um, and I would echo that statement, certainly. Um, my career started right after I graduated from St. Mary's College in 2004, and my first job out of school right before, I was very lucky, right before the economy turned south in 2009. A lot of my colleagues um, and classmates were not so lucky, but I was able to find a job at a private consulting company called Environmental Systems Analysis. And I worked as an environmental scientist doing a lot of field work. Um, I did a lot of water quality monitoring. I did a lot. I learned how to do forest stand delineations, wetland delineations. And I, I was working in a consulting situation. So we were a, a, a company that was, you know, put on contract by a developer to go and do a forest stand delineation or a wetland delineation so that we could show them where the natural resources are so that they could then match um, any proposed development to the zoning on the property. So um, I, I learned a lot in field data collection. I learned a lot about Maryland state uh, policy and legislation and, and how natural resources are managed in the state of Maryland. But I really wanted to go and affect kind of the policy side of things. You know, I was I was uh, I'd learned a lot. Um, but what I wanted to do was help affect change. I quickly understood that what we were doing on our land was directly reflected in our water. So if we were cutting trees down, you would you would instantly see that impact in our water bodies. And so I wanted to go and help affect change about how we manage um, what we do on our land so that we can have cleaner water. So I um, I worked uh, started a job 
in the Prince George's County Planning Department here in Maryland in 2007, where I was first doing natural resource inventory reviews, um, doing a lot of plan development. Um, but in the course of the seven years I was in the planning department, I moved my career into more of a long range policy work. And I helped my last detail at in Prince George's County was as a project manager with the plan Prince George's 2035, which is the long range plan for where and how Prince George's County wants to grow. And we wrote that plan in a sustainability format, which meant that we did not consider just long range plans in terms of the bottom line, in terms of money, but we considered uh, the triple bottom line, uh, the sustainability of it. So we considered people, planet and profit in, in the recommendations, policy recommendations that we were making to the county overall. So that was a really neat place to take a lot of the things that I'd been learning just on my own um, through you know, my work in the planning department, um, but also through my graduate program at Virginia Tech um, and kind of uh, pl apply those into writing a, a long range vision for Prince George's County, which I'm really excited to see that they're implementing parts of. Um, so that's really gratifying. And then in 2014, um, I got the opportunity to be the executive director of the South River Federation here in Annapolis. And um, then I moved my career into nonprofit management. And in 2017, I moved um, from my one river um, work at South River Federation to the entire Chesapeake Bay scale. So I moved from managing and thinking about and fundraising around a, a 66 square mile river all the way up to a 64,000 square mile watershed in 2017 with the Alliance for the Chesapeake Bay, where I am today. So I've held jobs in all three sectors, starting in the private sector, working in local government, and then now in nonprofit. So I, I feel like I, I got exposed to a lot of the different sectors and kind of the challenges and opportunities related to them all. But um, I've, re I've really been enjoying the nonprofit sector, which I feel like straddles both um, the the public, the government sec you know, sector and the private sector really well. Yeah, it kind of bridges the two. Absolutely. And yeah. And so a fun fact for listeners, Kate and I actually share an alma mater. So we, we <laughs> both earned our, our executive master of natural resources degrees from Virginia Tech, though we were in different cohorts. Um, it's a pretty small community, though. So I feel like everyone kind of got to know each other or were at least with, familiar with who everyone was, at, at least at that point. Um, and especially because at that time I was doing Chesapeake Bay work and Kate was the executive director of the South River Federation. So it's like <laughs> one small world with Virginia Tech's grad school program and then another small world with Chesapeake Bay conservation community bridging. Um, so I've been really familiar with with uh, Kate's work for a very long time. And I don't know if you feel the same way, Kate, but I feel like I... I really like telling people that I'm a master of natural resources. <laughs> sounds like, it's pretty empowering. <laughs> yeah, right. It sounds like I'm someone who has like superpowers that enable them, <laughs> me to like control nature, the climate, which That's right. if only it was that easy to manage climate change. That would be a total yeah. dream. <laughs> That's right. Like, you know, like maybe, maybe they, uh, should just change the name of the degree. So when students graduate, our official title is Captain Planet. But there you, you know, go. I, love I, it. I, love I, it. Uh, I really enjoyed my experience with uh, Virginia Tech and that whole program. And, and then also thinking about how, you know, you earned that degree. And then this is just for listeners as well. Um, Kate also has another degree in environmental management from University of Maryland University College. And so I am wondering what played into your decision to go to grad school 
not only once, but twice. <laughs> Take out two student loans, Jenna, is that your question? <laughs> well, I'm like, man, grad school really put me through the ringer. Um, I wouldn't yeah. trade it for the world, but it, that's it's quite the undertaking. So um, yeah. I'll do it well, twice. So- yeah, some of my thinking on that when I when I graduated from St. Mary's College, you know, that was a liberal arts college, and I have a biology degree from there. So again, inch deep, mile wide. Um, I needed, you know, as I started to wade into the work world, and I started to learn about the Maryland's, you know, Forest Conservation Act and the different way uh, the Clean Water Act influences, you know, permits and implementation on the ground. I I needed a bit more uh, some expertise, and so the University of Maryland University college program, which was online, which focused on environmental management, really taught me the standards, not just of my own state, but international standards. I learned all about the Clean Water Act, Clean Air Act, um, some you know pivotal federal legislation, um, international legislation, et cetera. So it did give me a bit of a deeper dive into understanding the realm of the, of the regulatory world. And so that was really helpful as I moved from the private sector into local government in terms of implementation. Um, and then, you know, as I got into my career and I started to figure out what I what I liked about working and what I didn't like about working, um, it really pointed out to me that um, I had a real interest in leadership and learning more, not just about my own leadership style, but how my leadership style can impact teams and how I can um, you know, lift up teams with me. Um, and so that really drove me to the Virginia Tech Executive Master's program. It was, you know, focused on leadership in sustainability. And to me, um, that was just a really interesting calling in 2011 when I enrolled in the program. And it, it has served me many times over um, in terms of the leadership exposure and the work that I do now at the Alliance. I agree. Um, I think that that program really, I I thought that it was so unique in terms of all the other programs I was looking at because of that leadership focus, um, kind of putting emphasis on, you know, pulling so many different students from different sectors and different backgrounds, putting all of us in the same room together to talk about how can we overcome and address these really large sustainability challenges, not just from one sector and one perspective? It's like weaving sustainability through everything that you do, no matter what career path that you go on. I thought that that was so fascinating and a really beneficial experience to have for sure. Absolutely. I would agree. Yeah. So, um, so I can kind of, I'm, I'm like, I'm going to kind of answer my own question first, which <laughs> I don't know how good of a hosting skill that is, but um, so so with thinking about my decision to go to grad school, it was a lot of it was because I did my undergrad. My degree was in communication and journalism because I very much fall into that group of people that went to undergrad and went to college that and was totally uncertain with what I wanted to do, but it was sort of like you go to college. That's what everybody does. And so I settled mm-hmm. on a communications degree because I feel like no matter what I ended up wanting to do, people always need strong communicators. And so for me, I was like, oh, now I've found myself going down this conservation path and really loving it, but I need a little bit more in-depth knowledge and substance behind my a bit of a broader degree. So I went to get something that was a little bit more specific and targeted, um, which I think has been very helpful for my own career moving forward because we've seen climate change as an ever-growing challenge and we always are going to need 
really strong communicators to interpret that science. So for people that are listening to this, that are, you know, are really interested in reading, writing, um, public speaking, and doing that under the umbrella of climate change and conservation, I think going to get a little bit more of a targeted degree is very helpful. And I'm wondering if you have any advice um, to give anybody that is considering a grad school program like the one that we went through or in the conservation field. My advice is always um, to work in the field first before going to grad school. I think that gives you exposure to what you do like to do and what you don't want to do. Because I think sometimes people walk out of undergrad and they say, well, I just need to go get my master's. But I know I know quite a few of my peers who graduated went and went on to like pharmacy school and got a pharmacy degree. And then now, you know, just they disowned it and that's not what they want to do at all. But unfortunately they're still paying the loans on that. Um, and so I, I think, I think taking a step out into the work world is a really important one. I would also advocate that volunteering with groups that interest you is a really important thing as well. It gives you exposure to different subject areas. It gives you exposure to volunteerism, which is just a, an incredible opportunity in general and then it gives you ideas of like some networks that you might want to start to build or pursue or some some people within that network who could potentially help you answer some questions or point you in the right direction. Um, and then, you know, I think also really knowing what what you're interested in. For me, I did not want a research degree that was going to get pigeonhole me into, you know, one type of research in one place. What I really wanted was something that I could broad brush apply at a larger scale and really focus on my own personal leadership because I was, I was interested in executive positions. Um, in, you know, before I, I, I uh, went through the Virginia tech program and here I am with the executive position now. And so I knew what I wanted um, before I even went into grad school. And so I would really encourage anybody to, to really do some self-reflection and understand what, what motivates you, what interests you because you're about to spend a lot of time and a lot of resources to, to make that happen. I think that's really sound advice. And um, I, I agree 100% thinking about grad school, because it, oftentimes, you know, you're really focused on a specific thing. And so you're going to be eating and sleeping and breathing that thing for however long your program <laughs> is. And so it's nice to get out into the real world and get that experience to, to know or test the waters to see if you really love that topic or whatever area you're thinking about going into, because I, I think where you thrive in grad school is, you know, you really, really enjoy whatever you're studying. So you're okay with giving that much time and effort and, you know, sometimes money, <laughs> a lot of the times money yes. to that a issue. Lot of time, yeah. yep. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. Yep. Exactly. So the Alliance for the Chesapeake Bay is an organization that I hold really near and dear to my heart because um, I worked very closely with Alliance staff during my time as a communications fellow at the Chesapeake Bay program. And the staff there is just made up of some really impressive people that are just so passionate and kind and bright and hardworking. And I really give them a lot of credit for helping me grow as a professional and as a human being during my time at the Bay Program. And I would love to hear you talk just a little bit more about the mission of the Alliance for the Chesapeake Bay and your role there. Absolutely. The Alliance is a 48-year-old organization who's been working regionally in the Chesapeake Bay for that whole time. 
And um, we're really focused on bringing together communities, companies, and conservationists to improve the lands and waters of the Chesapeake Bay. So we do this in two different ways that we're really good at. The first is helping convene different stakeholder groups from across different sectors, whether that be local government, federal, state government, businesses of all sizes, uh, local communities, houses of faith and, and different houses of faith and worship, um, individual homeowners, um, farmers, forest owners, etc. We help bring them together around different topic areas. So recently we've been working a lot on workforce development and maintenance and how to bring in uh, a new skill set into kind of the green economy to help us maintain some of these practices that we're putting on the ground. So we convene these voices together. We help bring uh, problems to the table, and then at the end of the day, walk away with solutions, which then leads to the second part of the work that we do really well, which is implementation on the ground, which is really helping us. We, we leverage a lot of resources. We leverage different partnerships in order to put more boots on the ground, whether they're ours or whether they're contractors or whether they're partners. We help mobilize um, uh, partnerships to get clean water work done. That can range from reforestation along right uh, along uh, stream sides in Pennsylvania that can involve retrofitting residential properties in Washington DC or in Richmond Virginia that can include large-scale stream restoration here in Maryland um, so we do we do a lot of implementation work mostly focused on agriculture forestry and green infrastructure so those are kind of the the two buckets of the work that we do as the alliance um, our our big conference of the year is probably one that uh, most people recognize our work around, which is the, the Chesapeake Watershed Forum. We just had our 14th annual one uh, last uh, two weekends ago. It's a um, great, great forum. I always had so much fun fantastic. there. <laughs> yep. yep. Where we have over you know 400 plus people join us in Shepherdstown, West Virginia every year, um, really to, to build their personal networks, to learn something new, to meet someone new, and to carry that work out of West Virginia and, and back into the work that we all do around the watershed. And our, our theme this year was better together um, and how, you know, collaborative partnerships are, are what's advancing the work for, for a cleaner Chesapeake Bay. And that truly is um, really summarizes if that was uh, our organization's motto, I think that would sum it up as better together. We, we fully believe that a rising tide will lift all boat, boats. And that is the work that we want to do across different partnerships. Yeah, and I think that is only going to be more increasingly important just over time when we think about all the climate challenges that we need, are facing and are needing to overcome. And, you know, we're going to be much stronger if we do that together and have strong leaders um, like yourself kind of leading that charge in conjunction with all of the other leaders in the conservation community and with all of these diverse groups. And so for all of the aspiring leaders out there, I am wondering, what does good leadership look like to you? Um, and, you know, how would you characterize your leadership style and what has it been like for you? What's your experience been like leading the, Ch the Alliance for the Chesapeake Bay? Well, my experience has been pretty awesome. Um, it's also been pretty humbling. And I think that's a really big part of leadership and what I perceive to be good leaders are um, are are people who's, who are willing to take a big dose of humility and um, recognize that there are some times when, you know, dictating the answer is the right, 
is the right way. But most of the time, activating the work of your organization is through con- through conversations and through questions and through coaching and mentoring. And it's instead of um, uh, kind of the advice monster and just handing down what you think should happen all the time. And a lot of the time, in order for that kind of that coaching and real question uh, work to happen, the leader needs to take a dose of humility and recognize that they don't have all the answers and that instead helping your staff or your management team uh, become better problem solvers is truly your task at hand as a leader. Um, it does not help my team if I'm always the one who has to answer all the questions because I only have so many time, so many hours in the day and so much ability to answer all those questions. But it will get the alliance a lot further down the road if um, our staff are better able to answer their own questions or think more critically about some of the challenges ahead of them and to do it in a collaborative fashion. So I really think that um, humility is number one. I really think that service to others is a huge part, probably uh, a really big part of my own leadership style. Um, And then three, really thinking of yourself as a mentor and a coach more than a supervisor or somebody um, you know, who's has some kind of hierarchical structure over somebody. I, I think that um, thinking of power, power with instead of power over your staff is a critical piece of some of the work that we do as leaders as well. Yeah, I think that's beautiful. You're really only as strong as your team and, you know, when your, your team succeeds, then so do you. And so I think that is a fantastic way to approach it. Um, and, you know, strong we were talking about partners partnerships, but it also is partnerships both like internally and externally that are going to really get us to a place of achieving our conservation goals. And so thinking about the partnerships that the Alliance for the Chesapeake Bay has with a number of other organizations and groups to push forward these conservation initiatives, what important importance do the partnerships hold when it comes to achieving um, the conservation goals that your organization has and the greater Chesapeake Bay conservation communities conservation goals. The power of the partnerships to me is really the power of a different perspective. We are the Alliance. Our mission is the lands and waters of the Chesapeake Bay. We are very focused and driven from that perspective. But when you bring different perspectives to the table, whether it's a business who is very concerned about a bottom line and you know shareholders, or if it's a community that's very concerned about their one property and maybe you know maybe even one tree on their one property, I think the, all of bringing different voices to the table, bringing those different pr- perspectives, it kind of starts to fit the story together like a puzzle. Where if you just had the alliance's perspective, you were going to get our perspective and the pieces of that puzzle. But you weren't going to be able to fill out the rest of the the border until you added in the local community's perspective. Or you were going to miss some critical piece in the middle of your puzzle if you didn't bring in the local business who also has employees who live in the community. And so I, I really think of partnerships really as a puzzle and fitting them all the pieces together is what's going to bring you the bigger picture. And so to me, that that's really the, the power and the need of partnerships. And um, this is something I have a, a, a little deviation, but I have a very distinct memory of being about 25, 26 and sitting on a, my first board of directors. And I was so upset with this woman who had an opinion very contrary to mine. And I was just ruminating it on, on it that night. And I just was angry. But then as I was processing it, I started to understand what she was saying 
And I came to have this really aha moment where I realized that without her perspective, we would have probably just done, you know, from one person's perspective, my perspective, and we would not have gotten further down the road about whatever it was we were discussing at this time. But I just remember having this real aha moment about the value of another person's perspective and what listening to that and really under seeking to understand that and how important that truly is in, in advancing some of this really complicated work that we do, especially here in the Chesapeake Bay with so many players, 18 million people live in our watershed. So um, I just, I really value and, and I have to take big deep breaths when people are saying the thing I, I don't want to hear or, oh man, that's going to make it so much harder or so much longer or whatever it is. Um, but I've really learned the value of the dissenting voice and the need to have it at the table, because if it's not at the table, it's likely going to ruin you or your plan somewhere else in the process. So might as well get it incorporated and, and make the best decision up front anyway. So um, that's just something I've learned. <laughs> I know. I really appreciate that you shared that. I think it's really timely um, for us to mention that because I mean, look at the times that we live in right now. It's a very polarizing space to be in and it can be very frustrating. And um, to take a moment instead of being reactive, but to be a little bit more reflective before immediately reacting to something that you might not agree with, I think is very wise, um, you know, because I find myself in those moments all the time where I want to initially react in a certain way, but I always find that I tend to respond so much better and with a much clearer mind, if I just take a moment, even just to take a couple breaths, if I don't have the time to like sleep on it. Um, I think that's a great thing to note um, and really important space for us to push ourselves in instead of pushing each other away to try to sit down at the table with people that don't think the same as we do and find that middle ground. Um, I think, you know, that that plays into the whole community aspect of it where we're all stronger together and we're not all going to think the same way or um, think the same management decisions are great. So, um, you know, bringing everybody to the table is, is wonderful. And frankly, and, you know, when I think about what it means to like to live in a world where we all have the same opinion, that sounds really boring. Yeah. Doesn't it sound depressing? Like, <laughs> it, it sounds like you only get one, one type of food, one type of restaurant. And that's really boring. Diversity of food is one of my favorite things. Um, yeah. I think about that all like, the time. Disagreeing. <laughs> it's the spice of life. Exactly. Like, get a little heated every now and then and challenge your own beliefs. I, I love it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you mentioned that Chesapeake Bay watershed has, you know, 18 million people in it. And you think about even like the land to water ratio of 14 to one brings these like really complex agricultural and urban areas meeting this beautiful watery ecosystem. Um, you know, there, it's such a fascinating and like complex area. Um, and I mean, we probably could go on forever uh, just talking about the Chesapeake Bay and what makes it so special. But what are some things that come to mind when you think about what makes this particular body of water or the watershed or the ecosystem, whatever way you want to approach it, what makes it so special? From my perspective, there's, you know, the history of the Chesapeake Bay that makes it so special. And then it really is thinking about the future of it as well. Just knowing that, you know, John Smith... Um, traveled the Chesapeake Bay initially and what he was finding about the abundant ecosystem, you know, the 3D oyster beds, the oyster beds that came, they were so large, they came out of the water. You know, this idea of having sturgeon that you could 
that were so plentiful across, you know, rivers like the James River that you could walk across the river on the backs of sturgeons. Those are all incredibly important um, points about how the Chesapeake Bay was. And then to think about its role in history, um, you know, uh, how it was utilized as transportation routes between, you know, the colonies, how it was used as uh, to send warships up and down during the Civil War, um, how it was utilized in the Underground Railroad to, uh, to help slaves escape um, slavery in the South. It has such an important role in so many big things of our, you know, cultural times. And then, you know, just the, the livelihood that it provided, whether it's, it was actual, you know, oystering or crabbing on the Chesapeake Bay or um, Lancaster County in Pennsylvania is like the, it's well, so well known across the world for its fertile soil. Um, and it's unbelievable in, in its rate of production. So, you know, that it can host a farming community that's so, um, so rich in its own soil without needing to add any fertilizers to it is, is an incredible story as well. So I think it's really the history of how the Chesapeake Bay helped shape our, literally shape our country in terms of transportation routes. And Washington, D.C. is seated in the middle of this watershed. And um, and then when you think about um, kind of what's going on in the, you know, as we're looking through our, our you know, to our magic eight ball, um, you know, trying to predict the future about climate change and some of those challenges that, you know, the Chesapeake Bay is the future of, of our culture and society in this, in the mid-Atlantic as well. If, you know, we're able to continue to build resiliency into its coast and to the coast and the, the shorelines there, that will only help us better face and bounce back from different, uh, you know, storm events, um, different heat or, um, or rain events. Um, and so, you know, the Chesapeake Bay, which has formed so much of how our society lives today in this area, really is, again, the future of, of protecting us from some of the really unpredictable things that are about to happen through different climatic changes. Yeah. And so staying in that same vein and, and thinking about some of the major climate challenges, are there any um, notable or alarming or encouraging trends that we're seeing relating to the health of the Bay? Um, or, you know, what are some of the major climate challenges that are facing the Bay? Well, I'll, I'll start with a good news story. Um, about 30% of the nitrogen that comes into the Chesapeake Bay was from um, our air shed. And that was mostly coming from the Ohio Valley. And we had started to see that precipitous drop off of how much nitrogen was being um, contributed by air because of clean water, clean air act actions um, in the Ohio Valley. Unfortunately, that's, that's being a bit unraveled at this time. So <laughs> we'll, we'll watch to see where that goes, but that was a real success story in terms of, you know, cleaning up the air was directly impacting and cleaning up our water. So, you know, as, as far as kind of the, um, you know, the climate change work and in, in reducing our air emissions, I think that will have a direct contribution to improving our, our water quality as well. So that's, that's a real story that I think we should, you know, better link together in the future. I do think um, we continue to be challenged by the unpredictable kind of periods of drought and periods of wet that the Chesapeake Bay is, um, predicted to see over the next couple of decades. I think we really saw that firsthand in 2018. I think um, around the Chesapeake Bay watershed, it was the wettest year on record since 1895 in many locations like Washington, D.C., Richmond, Virginia, and Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Um, and that really showed up. Um, the impact of, of that rain in 2018 really started to show up in 2019 with 
you know, our largest dead zone on record for the last couple of decades this summer, which means that there was really no oxygen at the bottom of our Chesapeake Bay. So fish were dying, um, you know, the submerged aquatic vegetation, the grass can't grow. Um, so that, that you know, we, we see the impact of a heavy wet year in one year, and then, you know, there's a lag to see it actually show up in some of our science and our indicators in, in the next year. So that will be a continual challenge for us, I think, um, in terms of the pulses of dry and wet that our climate will have on us. Um, we're managing our stormwater based on historic weather data. Um, and, you know, that might not be right to build our you know, stormwater ponds or, or retrofit our streams to based on old data anymore as those those patterns have really changed over time. And so that that will be a real challenge for our movement is kind of so much we depend on is is engineering and our ability to design a practice to take on a certain, you know, you know rainstorm type or whatever. Um, but if, if we're unable to model those in a way that's predictable, that, that really challenges the science in which we apply our management techniques to the land. Yeah. And I think that, you know, that comes full circle back around to the the land to water ratio that I mentioned a few minutes ago, which is the largest of anywhere in the world. And that really leads to complex problems with managing things like agricultural and urban runoff. So, you know, just for listeners that may not be as familiar with that process, but, you know, when you get those heavy rain seasons and you have that much farmland and major urban areas surrounding the bay and all that water has to go somewhere and it all will lead into the bay, which with, especially with the agricultural lands, you know, a lot of the nutrients and fertilizers that they put on their field will run off into the water and, um, you know, algae loves it, eats it up, grows into these big blooms. And then when that algae then dies, it, the process of the decay will deplete the water of oxygen. And so that's where you see those big dead zones that we're talking about. Um, and so it's a very complex problem that a lot of groups are trying to address in the Chesapeake Bay area and elsewhere. But, you know, especially I feel like this, the bay is a model for this because that land to water ratio is so large. Yeah, it was a good explanation of that. <laughs> Thanks. I'm like testing my my own knowledge from back in the day. I still got it from working in the communications department where I used to have to talk about this stuff all the time. That's right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, what are some ways, because I feel like a lot of people listen, you know, when they listen to this show or they read the news and they see all these big climate challenges that almost seem like too big or overwhelming to overcome. And I think that that can really turn a lot of people off into thinking about, you know, what can I do as an individual to help out with my own community or my own watershed? And so I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on how people that are living in the Chesapeake Bay region or the watershed can do their part to take care of it. I have many thoughts on how we can all do our part <laughs> to take care of it, because I truly believe that each of us has a role to play. And, and I would encourage everyone not to feel overwhelmed by the large challenge that uh, restoring the Chesapeake Bay is and, you know, that climate change is going to add to our challenge. It took us generations to get into the challenge that we're in with the Chesapeake Bay. It's going to take generations to get out. So. I um, implore everyone's patience, but to know that we, we can all do something. Um, so if you, if you own a house and you manage a yard, um, I would encourage you to 
you know, potentially just not fertilize your lawn at all, um, or really do a fertilizer um, test to see what kind of fertilizer your lawn needs. And certainly if it's going to rain, I would encourage you not to fertilize your lawn at all. That's, that's the, that's how the nutrients get into our waterways. If you, you know, own your own house, or if you're living in an urban area and a multi-dwelling, you know, multi-residential dwelling unit, and you have a dog, I would implore you to please pick up after your dog. Um, that's a huge source of um, bacteria and nutrients to our local waterways. Plus it's pretty gross when you step in it accidentally. Um, and then, you know, really just the things like, um, you know, bringing your own bags to the grocery store, you know, reducing um, the, the single use plastic, which if you go and visit the Anacostia River in, uh, in Washington, D.C., this time of the year where there are no leaves on the trees, the leaves are instead plastic bags. And those are just hanging up in our ecosystems and, and getting downstream. So I'd implore you, you know, to reduce kind of your single plastic usage. Um, and then, you know, other ways to, to, to really have a, a real impact is to volunteer with your local watershed groups. So the Alliance, we work regionally and we have different volunteer opportunities, whether it's tree plantings in our region or with our Project Clean Stream, which is our annual stream, uh, kind of a stream and rivers cleanup activity. Every, you know, a lot of different water bodies, um, your local neighbor, local stream or river has probably a group called the South River uh, Federation or the Severn River Association. Um, and I would encourage you to seek out those organizations that are really, truly community oriented and, and looking at their local rivers and streams and see if there's volunteer opportunities with them to help um, clean up your streams. And, and at the bare minimum, um, you know, if, if just organizing a trash, trash pickup, getting out and cleaning up your neighborhood, um, that's really something that we can all do and help keep that trash out of our local waterways. Yeah, I think it, so much of it lies with the power of the individual is, you know, choose like where can you influence? What impact can you have on your community? And what is like one positive thing that you can do every day to make your surroundings slightly, you know, better, healthier, improved, I think is a great mental state to be in and a great way to approach a problem that does seem uh, a little bit overwhelming at times. Absolutely. We, yeah. we can all be part of the solution for sure. Yes. And, you know, I feel very fortunate to sit in this position where I get to talk to people like you, who, you know, you and your organization and all of these really amazing uh, folks that are working to improve their own communities you all are the ones that motivate and inspire me and keep me going in this field of work. And I'm wondering what keeps you motivated and inspired and interested in the work that you do? I think for me, um, to keep me motivated and, you know, because I spend a lot of uh, kind of sleepless nights sometimes wrestling through a lot of our own organizational challenges or challenges of the movement writ large, but really what gets me out of bed in the morning are the people. I think you just nailed it, Jenna. Um, you know, the people that work at the Alliance are truly focused on the mission. They jump out of bed every morning thinking about their work and what they need to do. They're willing to put in long hours. They're willing to have uncomfortable conversations when necessary. They're willing to reach across to new different partners who probably aren't your traditional partners. We work with a lot of companies 
And I think a lot of traditional environmental groups would have um, you know, said, you stay over there, we'll be over here and do our thing. But instead, we've reached across a lot of aisles and made a lot of partnerships. And so to see not just the ethos of, of our mission, you know, bringing together the communities, companies and conservationists, not just saying that on paper, but the fact that everyone shows up every day really living that is something that continues to get me out of bed and, and makes me realize that we are part of a solution, a bigger solution and, and a longer term solution. Um, I will say a lot of uh, self-care is also something that needs to happen for me to you know, really um, uh, get out of bed and, and you know, make sure that I'm taking care of myself as a leader and making space for me and um, my own time. Um, you know, I've been at the Alliance for two years and I've certainly been eat, eating, living and breathing it for um, those two years, but um, recognizing that I need to make sure that I'm being taken care of as well. I can't take of other take care of others as a leader unless I'm also in a place um, where I'm supported and I'm feeling healthy and strong. So um, those are kind of the the two things that drive me are certainly the people who work here and the and the board members that help manage the organization and help us provide us a strategic direction, but um, also the need to to kind of step back and remember why we started this work um, and really um, don't forget the forest through the trees, as it were. <laughs> and because I'm sure a lot of people listening to this, if they aren't already familiar with the Alliance, are now wondering how can they get involved with you and your work? Great. Um, well, I hope you will check us out on our website, uh, allianceforthebay.org. We certainly are on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. Um, you certainly can sign up for our monthly newsletter via our website. There are different opportunities in each of our regions. So depending on whether you're near Annapolis, Maryland, Washington, D.C., Lancaster, Pennsylvania, or Richmond, Virginia, there's different volunteering opportunities. So definitely want to plug into that. I will say one of our upcoming events on January 23rd, we're doing a wild and scenic film festival um, and we're helping curate um, about uh, two hours worth of movies of different shorts of these beautiful movies that help us remember um, or learn about some of the environmental challenges and solutions around our country and, and the world. And we did this last year. This will be our second wild and scenic film festival it's just a wonderful way to spend a dark and cold Thursday in the middle of January, being inspired by some of the most beautiful natural places on earth and, um, and convening in a group with a group of other folks who are interested in, in learning and educating themselves further as well. So I certainly hope um, folks listening to this will check out, check out our wild and scenic film festival on January 23rd. That sounds like a great event. And I think it's so important to take time to, you know, if it's, even if it's too, too cold or you don't like the cold, I know that, you know, being, I'm from Maine, so I feel like I, I'm okay with bundling up and going outside, but there are definitely ways to still connect with the resource and remind yourself why we do the work that we do or why, you know, we as individuals, even if you're not in the conservation field, um, could be good stewards of our community and the environment. And it's through things like these film festivals where you can sit and see some incredible work by the videographers and the people that produce these things to bring the beauty of nature right to you. Um, so you can learn about, you know, any of the wide range of topics that I'm sure you all will cover in that film festival. So if you're around the area, please do go check that out because I'm sure it will be a spectacular event. It will. It will. It will lift your spirits. It was a fantastic event last year. 
And I like to wrap up every show with a series of rapid, well, I guess they're rapid-ish fire questions because there's no (laughs) time limit on them. Uh, But it's interesting to hear what comes to mind right away. So starting with, what do you think is the most pressing environmental challenge that we are faced with? I think uh, outside of Chesapeake Bay issues, it's, it's probably related to how we manage our solid waste in this country. Um, it's um, frightening to see some of our challenges around recycling. What we thought single stream recycling was going to achieve for us has not achieved anything for the world. It's probably um, more devastating for, for the world. Um, and so I think our biggest challenge is how we as a society manage our waste stream. And, and it really gets back to the core three R's, reduce, reuse, recycle. Um, and we need to find ways to reduce our waste, um, both personally at a residential level um, and then organizationally at businesses. Um, and then we need to start being a better culture about reusing some of our resources um, and not utilizing things like single-use plastics as much as we do. And then our third option really should be recycle. So I, I would really advocate that we need to get back to our kind of elementary school learnings and um, get back to reducing, reusing, and recycling. And what are you hopeful for moving forward? I am really hopeful and happy to see a next generation of environmental advocates stepping forward already. I'm not waiting to be um, given positions of power in an organization or in a club, but instead taking it upon themselves to stand up um, and say, this is our future and we demand change now. And um, I'm just so hopeful in seeing that not just in the world of the Chesapeake Bay, but just in the international stage around climate change in general, that the youth are really stepping forward. And I'm I'm incredibly encouraged by that, um, as that's who we're leaving this earth for next is is their generation. Yeah, I find that movement incredibly inspiring and energizing. And even I mean, it's so amazing to see this group of young, really incredible, bright people finding their voice and making real change. And I always think about this whenever, if through my day job, we often will go in and meet with our decision makers or members of Congress and bring in um, constituents with us. And my favorite thing is to bring in younger, the young people from the younger generation, because it's the connection that they can have to break through to these decision makers, it happens in a way that, you know, I can't, I feel like I don't have the power to do it. I I carry a different message and, you know, invaluable to that meeting in its own way, but it's so incredible and such a bright spot to have young people join us and be involved in advocacy work and in conservation work and realizing that they will get their respect and be listened to at that really high level by, you know, our decision makers at a federal level, um, and they can go in and are encouraged to go in and meet with those folks. Absolutely. I agree with that. So this last one is a a bit of a two-part question, starting with what is the best advice that you've ever been given? The best advice I've ever been given is, is from my dad, whose advice is simple and it's just to breathe. I love that. And I think sometimes we forget that so easily, especially in moments of um, 
stepping out of our comfort zone, doing something um, public speaking or meeting with a group of people you've never met with before. It's so easy to just forget to breathe. Um, actually, I'm, I'm sitting here at my desk. I have two screens. Um, I have uh, one screen. I put up a PowerPoint that just says breathe. And because <laughs> it really is the best. Yes. It is, you know, as, I, as I'm doing something, you know, that scares me today. And I've never done a, you know, a podcast like this before. Oh. And you know, to have a conversa- conversation like this. And, you know, it's, it's a step out of my comfort zone. But remembering to breathe and that I'm growing in, in this experience is, is part of um, really the advice my dad was giving me was just breathe and it's going to be okay. So much clarity can be found in breath. And, you know, I... I, for people that know me, I I've been, you know, practicing yoga for years and I really feel like it's beyond just the physical workout aspect of it. The benefits, the biggest benefit that I find in practicing yoga is just taking time to breathe and check in with myself. And so I, I love that advice. I think that just taking a moment to breathe and check in with yourself can solve a world of problems. (laughs) And I also appreciate you pushing yourself out of your comfort zone to join us today because I've I've really enjoyed this conversation and I think that the listeners will too. Um, and speaking of the listeners, I'm going to flip that question and ask, what advice do you have for them? I The advice I would give listeners would, would be to be fearless. And so be fearless in your pursuit of whatever it is that interests you whether it's a job, whether it's uh, your pursuit of getting to know a subject better, whether whether it's the pursuit of of meeting new people, um, whatever your pursuit is, just do it fearlessly, Um, especially to the younger generation who might be afraid that they don't have, you know, a network or connections that they really need. You know, be fearless in reaching out to who you think could potentially help you in some of your goals. Um, you know, I, I certainly will offer that I am always open to connections and conversations around this type of work, but really be fearless in pursuit of what makes makes you, what wakes you up and gets you out of bed every day and what lights your fire. Yeah, and I, I agree with that. I think that what, at least with my experience in the conservation field, people just seem to be so helpful and there's really space for everybody. You know, we need people that are passionate and bright and want to be involved in this world. And um, so please reach out to people that you admire and folks that you would like to be your mentor. If you have any questions about a certain career path, um, I think you'll find that it might be scary to reach out if you don't know the person. But generally, most people are very receptive to that kind of thing and are happy to help however they can. Absolutely. We were all there at one point. So yes. um, be, be fearless. Don't let your, your nerves tell you otherwise. Yes. And Kate, thank you so, so, so much for joining me today. I just, I really appreciate all of the hard work that you and your colleagues at the Alliance and the greater Chesapeake Bay conservation community are doing to protect and restore the Bay. Um, and this has been a really special conversation and I'm just so glad that we took a little time to check in and um, hear so many wise words of wisdom from you. And I look forward to following along with um, all the work that you guys are going to continue to do into the future. Great. Well, thank you, Jenna. This was a very fun hour to talk, uh, to talk, you know, a little bit of shop, but a little bit of personal story. And I really appreciate the opportunity. So thanks so much for you for reaching out. And 
I would also like to thank the listeners. If you like this show and want to hear more, please subscribe to the American Shoreline Podcast Network wherever you listen to podcasts. Rates and reviews are always appreciated. And you can find us on Facebook at the American Shoreline Podcast Network and on Twitter at Coastal News 365. And you can find me personally on Twitter. It's at Yenna Benna. It's Y-E-N-N-A-B-E-N-N-A. I always feel so silly saying that, um, but I didn't realize I'd be a podcaster when I started my Twitter account. And so that's what I'm stuck with. Um, but then on Instagram, it's the same thing. And But the Yenna has three N's in it. So please find us online and let's chat about our beautiful coastlines. Mm-hmm.